Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The New Testament boldly proclaims that a believer in Jesus Christ is not under the law. Now, what does that mean? There are several possible answers to the question of what it means to not be under the law. Some people come to this question and they divide the Old Testament Mosaic law into three parts, the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. And they then conclude that when the New Testament teaches that we're not under law, it means that we are not under the civil and ceremonial law, but we are under the moral law. Now, the problem with that view is that one of the Ten Commandments, one of the moral laws, is thou shalt keep the Sabbath day holy. So there are people who say, well, if you're under the moral law, you are obligated to observe Saturday instead of Sunday. There's another answer to this thorny question. And that is that we are not under the condemnation of the law. I remember several years ago when I first heard that answer and I wondered to myself, how did they arrive at that? And uh, in the last several years I have found out. What the Bible says is that we are not under law but under grace. And because that is the statement that is made, some scholars have said, oh, to be under grace is to not be under condemnation. Therefore, when the Bible says you're not under law, it must mean you're not under the condemnation of the law. And they arrived at that conclusion because of the connection with grace when the statement is made, we're not under law. There is a third possible answer to that question, and it is that the Bible means just exactly what it says. We are not under the law at all, meaning the Mosaic law. Is that the answer? And how do you know which one of these answers is the biblical answer? Well. I would invite your attention to Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the question of the relationship of the believer in Jesus Christ to the law. And in the first six verses, I think he answers the question, what it means to not be under the law. And to some extent in this passage, even what it means by law. So let's begin at Romans chapter 7, verse 1. 
he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the passions of sin, which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. To really understand what is going on in this section of Romans, you need to begin by backing up to chapter 6, verse 14. It was there that Paul said, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. That was the conclusion of the first paragraph in Romans chapter 6. He then begins the next paragraph by asking, What then shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. Now, actually, that question of Romans 6.15 extends from that point on all the way through chapter 7, verse 6. In that section, there are actually two paragraphs. The first is from chapter 6, verse 15 through 23, and the second paragraph is the one I just read in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. You might notice that he says in verse 16 of chapter 6, do you not know? And he says in chapter 7, verse 1, do you not know, brethren? Now you might just underscore those two phrases. In other words, what's happening here is this. He makes the statement that we're not under law, but we're under grace. And then he asks, shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? And he gives two answers to that, both introduced by the statement, do you not know? The first is in chapter 6, verses 16 to 23, and the second is in chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. In that first paragraph, he says that we have been freed from sin. And when we trusted Jesus Christ, we became slaves of righteousness. Now that's the first answer he gives. Should we sin because we're not under law? No, because we became slaves of righteousness. And then he explains that whomever you obey to that person, you become their slave. And you've been freed from sin, you've become the slave of Christ, and so you should continue to obey him. The second answer he gives to that question 
is in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And in essence, what he does is he begins by laying down a principle. That's in verse 1. Then he illustrates that principle in verses 2 and 3. And then he applies the principle in verses 4 through 6. The principle that he establishes in verse 1 is the second answer he gives to the question of chapter 6, verse 15. The principle simply stated is this. Law only reigns over a person as long as that person is alive. That's the principle of these six verses. Let me repeat it. A law only reigns or rules over a person as long as that person is alive. Just read verse 1. It becomes immediately and blatantly obvious that that's what he's saying. Chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And obviously the point is, only as long as he lives. A simple illustration would be that as a citizen of this country, I am obligated to obey certain laws. I have to drive on the right-hand side of the street. I have to pay taxes. I am not to rob banks or filling stations. But now, <clears throat> if I were to die, I would no longer be under those laws. The corpse in the morgue is not obligated to drive on the right-hand side of the street. The corpse in the morgue is not obligated to pay taxes. The corpse in the morgue doesn't have to worry about robbing the bank. That law only rules and reigns over us as long as we are alive. Now that's my illustration. It's not Paul's. He has another illustration. Look in verse 2. He says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. My illustration is of the laws of the land that I'm under now. Paul's illustration is of marriage. And he simply points out that Marriage is intended to be lifelong. That you are to be married, you are to be bound to the one you are married to as long as your mate lives. But if he should die, you are released from that obligation. You are married, you remember that you took a vow before a pastor or a justice of the peace before witnesses, before God, and you said that you would love, honor, and cherish that person. And then, hopefully, in your ceremony was the phrase, until death do us part. So the intent is that you are married to that person until one of you dies. Marriage is an obligation that is lifelong, and only death should break it. Now, he makes an application still within the illustration or a conclusion. And he says in verse 3, So then, 
if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Now, he is simply saying that if uh, the mate were to die, in this case the wife's husband, if he were to die, she is perfectly free to go marry somebody else. If she were to do that while he's still alive, Paul says, she is an adulteress. Now, let me pause here for a minute. Let me do a couple of things. The principle is, the law rules over me as long as I live. If I die, I'm not under that law. The illustration is marriage. The marriage of a woman to a man. She's bound to him and obligated to him as long as he's alive. But if he dies, she's free to marry somebody else. Now, having said that, I need to say something that's not related to this passage because it constantly comes up. There are some who've come to this passage and concluded that it means that there are no grounds ever for divorce, ever. Matter of fact, those who take that position will often come to this passage and argue that Paul's illustration indicates that there's never a legitimate grounds for a divorce. Now, I want to speak to that. It's not related to this passage, because here we're talking about a spiritual issue of our relationship to the law. But because this is so often used in that regard, I feel compelled to say a word about it. Please hear me, and please hear me carefully. All the years I've pastored this church, I don't think I've ever said uh, much about the subject of divorce. So I want to begin by saying, God hates it. All right? That's Malachi. God hates divorce. Furthermore, it is my personal opinion that divorce is the most devastating experience that a human being can have. Every kind of an emotion that it is possible for a person to have, they have when they're going through a divorce. They feel guilty. They feel angry. They're fearful. They're lonely. And on and on and on and on the list goes. By far and away, the most devastating situations I've ever seen, the most devastated people I've ever dealt with, are those who were going through a divorce even when they wanted it. All right? So I don't want what I'm about to say to be interpreted in any way as freedom to get a divorce. But having said that, the simple reality is Jesus Christ himself allowed an exception. In Matthew chapter 19, he made it clear that marriage was to be permanent. And then he said, if you divorce your wife and marry another, you commit adultery, except in the case of fornication. Jesus Christ clearly made an exception. I am of the opinion that there is a second exception. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about being married to an unsaved person and that unsaved person wanting to 
leave. And he says, you're not bound. So, I think those two passages of Scripture drive us to the conclusion that the Bible does, in some cases, allow for a divorce. That doesn't mean that you should take it. Doesn't mean that uh, that's the best. It is not. But it does allow for it. I do not believe that the people who take the position that there's no divorce for any reason are being fair with the Scripture. Now, what do you say then about this passage? This passage says you're bound as long as you live. If you marry another, you've committed adultery. What I say to that is simply, this is an illustration. The subject of this passage is not marriage. The subject of this passage is not divorce. The subject of this passage is not remarriage. The subject of this passage is the relationship of the believer to the law. And Paul never intended for his illustration in this case to be used to teach something about marriage which he himself elsewhere would have rejected. He wrote 1 Corinthians 7 and allowed in that passage for a divorce. By the way, the position that I have just given you is the standard traditional position of the Protestant church from the time of the Reformation to the present. Those who say there is no divorce for any reason among Christians are in the clear minority. They are very dogmatic individuals, but I think they are misguided. I believe the Bible teaches there are legitimate reasons for a divorce. I do not believe this passage teaches there is no divorce for any reason. Now that's a little footnote in this uh, exposition because the point of all of this is that the believer, uh, or the point he's made so far, is that I'm only under any law as long as I am alive. If I died, I'm not under that law anymore. And the illustration is marriage, where a woman is married to a man. And uh, if he dies, she is no longer uh, obligated to stay married to him, obviously. She's free to marry another. Now Paul makes the application of all of that, beginning in verse 4. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now, verse 4 is the point of these six verses. There are several things that are critical. In the first place, I would expect him to say, the law died, but he doesn't. He says, I died to the law, which means this illustration is far from being a perfect parallel to what he's illustrating. That is often used as an argument why you can't apply this to the divorce situation that I just mentioned. But be all that as it may, the point is, I died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, what does that mean? The body of Christ here can be either taken literally as a reference to his physical body or it can be taken spiritually as to the body of Christ. My opinion is that he is talking primarily about the physical body of Christ but that the spiritual body of Christ is implied. Now let me explain that. 
When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died to sin, to the law, to the whole thing. So that through his death, I died to the law. Now that means simply this. The Bible says, you break the law, you die. Jesus, I broke the law, Jesus Christ died. Now, by the operation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was explained in chapter 6, I was put into Christ, and that means I died like he died. That's Romans 6. And I was raised when he was raised. That's Romans 6. So what he is saying is through the body of Christ, primarily through the literal, physical body of Jesus Christ, I died to the law because the law slew me and I died in it. So that's the first point that he is making. I died to the law by being placed into Christ. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean I died to the civil law? The ceremonial law? The moral law? The condemnation of the law? Or all the law? Or none of the above? It'd be fun to vote. How many think we're dead to the, just the civil and ceremonial law? How many think we're dead to um, the condemnation of the law? How many think we're dead to all the law? How many of you don't think? <laughs> well, in my opinion, the answer to this question is, I am dead to the whole law. How do you know that includes the moral law? How do you know that's what Paul had in mind? All he says is that you have become dead to the law. How do we know which law he has in mind? Well, in the first place, those who divide the law into three parts come up with something that is never done in the Scripture. The Bible never makes the distinction between the civil, ceremonial, and moral law. But more to the point, is that in verse 7 he says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Huh. When he wants to reach for a specific law to illustrate, he reaches for covetousness which is part and parcel of the moral law, not the ceremonial or the civic law. So when this passage teaches that believers are not under the law, it means we are not under the Mosaic law, not the civil law, not the ceremonial law, not the moral law. We are not under the law. Now, let me just assure you, that's not something I am trying to squeeze out of this passage, that that is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. I want you to take your Bible, put your finger in Romans 7, because we're coming back, and I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And look at verse 24. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, 
we are no longer under a tutor, which is the law. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 are clearly teaching we're not under the law, as does Romans 6, 6, 14. Now, what did he have in mind? Drop down to chapter 4, verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Now, clearly, he's talking about some of the ceremonial laws. But he's also talking about some of the moral laws because he mentions days, and that would include the Sabbath days. So Paul teaches in Galatians, we're not under the law, and that includes the moral law because it includes Saturday as the Sabbath. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, he says, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The handwriting of requirements is the law. The only part of the law that was written by God was the moral law. Now, just to show you that that's exactly what he has in mind, drop down to verse 16. Therefore, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moons or Sabbaths. So the law was nailed to the cross, and that includes the Sabbath. That means the moral law was included. One more passage while we're doing this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 15, he says, well, let's begin with verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Notice he has abolished in his flesh, that's Romans 7, through his body, the enmity which is defined as the law of commandments. So when Christ died, he did away with the law. Does that leave us lawless? Are Christians without law? And the answer is no. As the New Testament explains, we're under the law of Christ. It says that in Galatians 6.2. It says it in 1 Corinthians 9.21. And, interestingly enough, if you are under the law of Christ, lo and behold, you will end up fulfilling the moral law, at least the universal law that reflects the holiness of God. And that's taught in Galatians 5, 13, and 14, and it's taught in Romans 13, 10. And when we get to Romans 13, 10, I'll explain in more detail how that works. But for right now, I just want to say we are not under the Mosaic law. We are under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And when you fulfill the law of love, lo and behold, you have fulfilled 
the essence of the moral law in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Code. So back in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, he is tenaciously, dogmatically teaching we are not under the law. But let's look at Romans 7, verse 4 again. Therefore, my brethren, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. Now, this is piggybacking on his illustration of marriage in verses 2 and 3. I'm dead to this one I was united to so that I can be united to another. Now, who am I married to now? Well, verse 4 says, to him who was raised from the dead so that I am now united to Jesus Christ. Now, here's the picture. I was married to the law. Now, the illustration isn't perfect because the law is the one that should have died. But he changes it to fit his purpose and says, I died to the law. Now, I can be married to another. When I trusted Jesus Christ, I was baptized into Christ, and I am now said to be married to him. That results in, look at verse 4, that we should bear fruit to God. So I am dead to the law. Let's use the word divorced. That's really not a good word. I'm dead to it. I'm married to another. And now, as we have intimacy, there is fruit. And I think that's John chapter 15, which discusses fruit bearing in detail as we abide in Christ, which is interpreted in John 15 as obedience to Christ. We are united to him. We are in fellowship with him and we bear fruit, which I take it are things like the fruit of the spirit, as well as producing perhaps even other Christians through our testimony. So I am dead to the law. I'm married to Christ and we have children together. We bear fruit. Now, at this point in the passage, Paul expands and elaborates on this concept of fruit bearing. That's the last point he makes in verse 4, and he picks it up in verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the passions of sin which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Now, to be in the flesh in this passage means before I became a Christian. Before I became a Christian, he says, the passions of sin were aroused by the law. And that produced a fruit. And the fruit then was death. Now, this is real simple. I have a sin nature. It was aggravated and agitated by the law. So I sinned more, and the fruit was death. That's simple. Now what's a little interesting is this concept that the law arouses sin. Isn't that interesting? Any parent knows that, right? I mean, you know your kid has a sin nature. But just as sure as you tell him no, what's he going to do? It just eggs him on, right? I think this concept has profound ramifications for parenting and counseling and for preaching. I think some preaching does nothing more 
that encourage people to sin. I mean, you just browbeat people with no, 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 law, 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 law all the time. And, and it's just going to, you just tell some people no, and they're going to go straight and do it. They have totally missed the grace concept of the New Testament. Totally missed it. I think this is why some parents end up with children that rebel and do all kinds of things that they shouldn't do. It is because, as parents, they laid the law down. They laid them under the law. They laid it down and laid it down and laid it down, and they were actually just encouraging their kids to sin the more. One of the best illustrations of this I ever heard, I heard Chuck Swindoll give. He told about a hotel in uh, Galveston, Texas, called the Flagship Hotel. It was built right into the edge of the water. And on the first floor was a restaurant so that you could eat at this restaurant and look through a plate glass window at the Gulf of Mexico. It was a seven-story hotel. And on all the floors above the restaurant were rooms. And those that faced the Gulf had little balconies out at the end of them. Now, in each one of those rooms, they put a little sign which said, no fishing from the balcony. Now, guess what people did? They fished from the balcony. And guess what happened? They broke out the plate glass window. They had these little lead weights on the fishing line. They threw the fishing line out, and it came swinging back and hit the plate glass window on the first floor. They replaced that plate glass window enough times that they finally caught on. And they simply went through all the rooms with balconies, and they took down the signs that said, no fishing from the balcony. It never occurred to anybody. And they saved all kinds of money on plate glass windows. Now, the law arouses sin. You lay people under law, and they're just going to be that much more apt to sin, Paul is saying. And the result of that is going to be the wages of sin is death. Now, he contrasts that in verse 6 by saying, Now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that, and here's the purpose, we should serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, he's simply summing up this point and saying, we've been delivered from the law. Matter of fact, he says, uh, we've been delivered from the law in this verse. He has said, we are not under the law earlier in this passage. We've been delivered from it. But having died to it, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit. Now this is just a foretaste of what he is going to get at in the next chapter. This is the first time in this portion of Romans that he has mentioned the Holy Spirit. We're going to get at this in depth in chapter 8. But in the meantime, he is saying that we should serve in the Spirit and not by the oldness of the letter. Now, there are a series of contrasts that sum all this up, and they're all given to us 
in verse 6. There is the old versus the new. The oldness of the letter is a reference to the Mosaic law. The newness of the Spirit is, of course, a reference to the Holy Spirit. Then there is the whole contrast of not just the old versus the new, but the law versus the Holy Spirit. And that implies a third contrast, which is the external versus the internal. That the grace system does not work from an external system that lays the law on me, but it works from the inside. You have to voluntarily choose in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, or it will never work. So, he is summing it all up in a sense in verse 6, by contrasting the two systems. The sum of these six verses, then, is simply this. Believers are dead to the law so that they can be alive to God so that they can bear fruit. I think the verse that sums it all up is verse 4. That's the verse that said it all. It was the application of the illustration and the principle. My brethren, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, that's the one who was raised from the dead, that you should bear fruit to God. Those three little steps in verse 4 are the sum of this passage. Now just in case you've missed what I said, let me review and let me emphasize the critical points of this passage. What does it mean to not be under the law? Does it mean I'm not under the civil and ceremonial law, but I'm under the moral law? Answer, no. It means I am not under the law, period. Any of the Mosaic law. Does it just mean I'm not under the condemnation of the law, but I'm still obligated to obey some of the other Mosaic laws? Answer, no. I am not under any of the Mosaic law. That's a pretty big pill for some to swallow. Matter of fact, they get nervous. I mean, doesn't that make you lawless? No. You come to that kind of a conclusion, you have totally misunderstood the grace system. What it means is, you are free to be married to another. You don't have to focus and concentrate on the external law, you can concentrate on the Lord. You're free to go boldly to the throne of grace, to have fellowship with Him. But be careful, because as you do, there is conviction and enlightenment and empowerment. You find yourself doing voluntarily from the inside out, what he wants you to do. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the Presbyterian pastor who's now with the Lord, captured the spirit of Romans 7 beautifully when he said, and I quote, Romans 7 is one of the most misunderstood chapters in the Bible because most people read it with the attitude, it can't mean what it says. The theme is that the believer is no longer under the law of God because he's been joined to Christ in his resurrection. Like an inexperienced swimmer, 
the average Christian stands in the terror of such deep water as complete abandonment to the grace of God. He, he fears to be borne along on the will of God in his daily life, to cast himself completely on the direction of the Holy Spirit. But once he gets over the panic of such self-abandonment, he finds that the grace of God sustains, carries, cradles, and calms him. And he lives eternity in time. This is the purpose of Romans 7. To help the willing believer to cast himself into the depths of grace. End of quote. Beautifully said. This truth scares some people to death. Like an inexperienced swimmer wading out into the water. But that's where living in Barnhouse's terms, eternity in time really begins. You know what I'm telling you? What I'm telling you is you shouldn't try to live by law. And that's not my idea. Paul said that. And he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That is the only kind of Christian life some people know, and it is a life of utter defeat, as Paul will explain in the latter part of chapter 7. I'm telling you, don't try to live by law, by yourself. You'll never make it. Never make it. I won't clarify, all right? In real simple terms, what I'm telling you is you cannot be saved by keeping the law. Are we agreed on that? No problem with that, right? I'm also telling you, you cannot be sanctified by keeping the law. Nope. You mean I don't have to keep the law to be saved? That's exactly right. The truth of the matter is you can't keep the law, right? Now I'm telling you, you can't be sanctified by keeping the law either. Boy, that makes people uneasy. But it's the truth. It's what he's saying. Griffith Thomas has put it like this. If the apostle did not show this, he would leave the Christian man in bondage, not for salvation, but for sanctification and service, struggling in a hard legal way to please God insisting of finding his source and spring of joyous service in union with Christ. This instruction about the law is therefore necessary because of the danger to believers being in bondage to the law and not enjoying the liberty of grace. End of quote. Right on. I'm not under law. Not for salvation. Not for sanctification. Well, if I'm telling you to not live by the law, what am I going to put in its place? And the answer is, this is really terrific. You ready for this? I got a new marriage. 
I'm married to another. Why worry about that old marriage? I mean, that old mate's dead and buried and decayed, decomposed. Don't lug that corpse around. I'm married to another. Now, what are you telling me? I'm telling you, go develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I'm telling you. Get to know him. And as you get to know him in a personal, intimate way, you'll develop fruit. And it'll be internal. It'll be voluntary. It'll be willingly. And you'll love every minute of it. Somebody has said, in the New Testament, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. And those kind of things go together. Once you've tasted the grace of God and you get to know that you stand in his favor, you have free access to him and you talk to him, and you can't wait to hear from him, so you assimilate his word, and there's fellowship, and there's union, and there's communion, and there's <laughs> marriage. Then there'll be children. There won't be any phoniness about it. Won't be stuck on plastic fruit. It'll be living, vital, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, and meekness, and self-control. In commenting on this passage, Charles Haddon Spurgeon made a very practical suggestion. He said it like this. Make a confidant of the Lord Jesus. Tell him all. You are married unto him. Play the part of a wife who keeps no secrets back, no trials back, no joys back. Tell them all to him. If you do that, you will be refreshed by his grace and empowered by his life. Let's pray. Father, we don't fully appreciate our deliverance from the law until we read it. When we think of all the things they had to do, the old covenant, makes us deeply grateful that we are freed from that so that we can be married to you. But Father, we confess that too often we try to continue the relationship with the law and that deprives us of our time with you. My prayer is that as we move through these passages the Spirit of God will use them to alter our thinking and therefore transform our lives. Father, may there be free, genuine fellowship with you that produces fruit to your glory. Give us the life that we have in Christ, not the law that we have in Moses. Jesus' name I pray. Amen.